It is a pleasure to be wrapping up this series with you. I've really enjoyed uh, this series that we've called Before Bethlehem. And I think the reason why I've enjoyed it so much is because uh, it's a rare thing when we actually go back to the Old Testament and start to think about, well, where is Jesus at work? And yet, as we've studied these passages together, what we've seen is some pretty amazing things about Jesus' identity, about his mission, and about his calling for our lives. In our first week, we we looked at the fact that Jesus was indeed the Word made flesh. And that just as he was the Word, that means that the Word uh, was with God and the Word was God, as it says in John chapter 1, which means that, that Jesus, the Word of God, was there at creation, making all things. And then in week two, we looked at this idea that Jesus is the commander of the Lord's army, That he's the one who brings the sword in order to bring justice on the earth. That he wields the sword and shields to defend his people and to bring about justice. In week three, we saw how Jesus is the rock. The rock who pours forth life-giving water for his people in the desert that they might be nourished. And then in in the fourth week, we looked at the fact that Jesus is our king our king of righteousness and peace. And so this week, as we wrap up this series, we're going to be looking at one more appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. We're going to be seeing one more symbol that tells us about him. But I think it's only right that before we dive into this passage, that we take a moment to allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, you are indeed holy. And before you, no one can stand, and yet you invite us into your presence, and you give us the gift of your word. And so, Lord, we ask that as that message is proclaimed, that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive it. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the passage that we're going to be looking at, the appearance in the Old Testament that we're going to be studying together, is that reading from Isaiah chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open up to Isaiah 6, starting in the first verse. Because it's in the first verse that we learn a little bit about the context in which Isaiah... uh, basically performed his prophetic ministry uh, when he lived and what was going on. We read in Isaiah 6, uh, verse 1, and he says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted seated on a throne. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now that immediately tells us something. It tells us that when Isaiah was writing this, was around the time of, uh, well, when Isaiah had this encounter with God, it was around 740 B.C. And it tells us a little something about who was reigning uh, at that time. It was King Uzziah. And if you look at the Old Testament, you learn a couple of things about Uzziah. First and foremost, King Uzziah had one of the longest reigns of any of the kings in Jerusalem. He reigned on his throne for about 50 years. And during the the time of his reign, Uzziah was an extremely successful king. And he was successful in a variety of ways and in a variety of levels. First and foremost, he was successful in battle. That he actually drove out many of the enemies of Judah. 
that he went into war and he was successful and conquered them and drove them out, and he established a time of peace and prosperity in the land. Furthermore, he entered into new trade agreements and and brokered new peace deals with the surrounding nations around him. But more than this, we also learn that King Uzziah was a very, very religious man. And then he inaugurated religious reforms in Israel, bringing the people back to the worship of God and destroying idols. Overall, you would look at King Uzziah's reign and you would say it was a very, very successful reign. But toward the end of King Uzziah's reign, things started to get a little bit shaky and a little bit uncertain. And it actually began when Uzziah did something that he wasn't supposed to do as a king. He went into the holiest place in the temple to offer incense before the Lord. Now you would think, well, that's, that's, what's the big deal with that? Well, the big deal is, is that in God's law, in the Torah, God says, never shall anyone go into the holy of holies to offer unlawful fire before me. Only the high priest at the time that I set is allowed in there. Uzziah, you can kind of imagine maybe some of his fame, maybe some of his success got to his head. And he decided, well, I'm the king. I can go in there and offer worship to the Lord. And the result was that he actually was banished from the presence of God. He was no longer allowed back in worshiping assemblies because what we learn is that by in doing that, he was struck with leprosy. And leprosy in those days basically meant that you had to live apart from the people. You were banished from the assembly because you were seen as unclean. This leprosy is eventually what ended up uh, taking Uzziah's life. And now we read in um, in, uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. And I have to imagine that for Isaiah, this was a pretty shocking thing. That it was probably pretty shocking, not just for him, but for all the people of Israel, because this is now the end of a dynasty. This is the end of a season of peace and prosperity in the land. This is the end of a time in which people have said things are going well for the people of the Lord. We're worshiping God. We're enjoying uh, peace. We're enjoying economic prosperity. And now the one who led us, the one who provided for all of that, is gone and dead. And I have to imagine that that Isaiah was looking at his world, this world that seemed to be spinning so predictably, and suddenly it stopped. It's come to an end. And I have to imagine there's no small degree of anxiety in Jerusalem and in Judah at this time as people wonder, well, what will happen next? How will the next king reign? What will we do? I mean, with the death of Uzziah, it means the end of those peace treaties. With the uh, death of Uzziah, it means the end of all, that, of all those economic deals and trade partnerships. With the death of Uzziah, it seems like the world has now been turned upside down. And I have to imagine that Isaiah and the rest of the people of Judah are wondering, now what do we do? It would have been a season characterized by great anxiety. And which is why I, I love the fact that we're studying this passage right now because of the fact that, that this, uh, what, what I love about the Old Testament is though we are separated from many of these stories by thousands of years, you can see how contemporary they really are. That when I think about our world today, when I think about our country, when I think about the attitudes and the, and the atmosphere of the people around me, I think that anxiety is probably a pretty good way to characterize how people think about the world. 
In fact, recently I read a uh, column that was uh, printed in the Washington Post by Michael Gerson. And this is what he says in that column, and I think that this is quite telling. He says, I would submit that the defining emotion of our time is anxiety. Now, some anxiousness, of course, is natural to a species whose ancestors were hunted on the savannah. But now the economy seems to manufacture it. Rapid cultural change encourages it. The media amplifies and monetizes it. Social media spreads it. Politicians feed it and send it into battle. And when a society is defined by anxiety, when it ceases to believe that change involves progress, it becomes stagnant and inward-looking. When the spark of confidence and purpose is gone from a human life, the temptation is to become angry or depressed or angry and depressed. We try to numb ourselves with infinitely varied sources of digital distraction, but still, in the unfulfilled spaces of the day and night, the dark thoughts come. Silence is filled with self-recrimination, and despair can take root like a slow-growing cancer, not currently fatal, but always there. I think it's a good way of describing what I see when I look at the news. What I see when I listen to people talking in coffee shops. An overwhelming anxiety because all the familiar, all the secure seems to have been turned on its head and people wonder what is to become of us. Which is why I think it's interesting that Isaiah in that moment of anxiety, in this year of uncertainty, as he looks toward an unknown future, receives the following it says, in that year, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings that covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. See, in this moment of great anxiety for Isaiah, suddenly he has a vision of the Lord seated on his throne. Which I think is a very, very appropriate image. Because Isaiah is here in the temple, no doubt praying, no doubt wondering, Lord, what is next? The king is dead. And the king shows up and says, no, I'm not. I still am seated on my throne in glory. In fact, the whole earth is full of my glory. I reign, I am in control, I am in command, and the very foundations of the earth will shake at the power of my reign and the sound of my voice. I think it's a very powerful image. It's a very reassuring image in so many ways. Because as we look to a new year, as we look out to 2019, I think many people are uncertain and they wonder who is in control and what will become of us and what God reveals in this vision to Isaiah is he says, even though it seems like your king is gone, the institutions that you trust in have crumbled, then there is fear and doubt. Know that I am seated on my throne in glory. I reign from everlasting to everlasting. It's a powerful image for an anxious world. A powerful image for an anxious world. It's so powerful of an image that Isaiah's only response is to cry out. 
to initially cry out in fear. He says, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You see, Isaiah, beholding the Lord, beholding him in his power and in his glory, in his perfectness and in his holiness, suddenly comes face to face with the fact that he's not as holy as he thinks. It's amazing how in those moments when you start to really focus on what it means to be good, when you really start to try your best to live a moral life, how suddenly you come up short, right? I mean, a good thought experiment is to say, okay, this, this week I'm going to try something. I'm going to try and get through the entire uh, week, you know, uh, generously serving people. If anybody asks for my help, I'm going to give it. And sure enough, the moment someone asks for help, what's the first thought that runs through our head? I don't really have time. This is really quite inconvenient. I don't know if I can do it. You see, the moment you start to focus on holiness, the moment you start to focus on goodness and perfection, you very, very quickly realize how inadequate you actually are. And here is Isaiah face-to-face with the very definition of perfection, with the very definition of holiness, with the God who judges all people, who reigns on his throne in righteousness and in justice. And Isaiah very quickly realizes, I am an unjust man. I am an unclean man. I am a man of unclean lips who dwells among a people of unclean lips. I realize that my society, although it looked good at the time in the face of God, has fallen drastically short of his plan and his purposes. And how can I possibly stand in his presence? I have to imagine that there's many of us who have been in that place before. When we suddenly come face to face with our own shortcomings and our own failings, When we look back at 2018 and the resolutions that we may have made last January and we realize how drastically we've fallen short. How maybe we have even forgotten what we had promised. Or we look at our lives and the promises that we've made to our families and we see the ways in which we've hurt them, turned our backs on them, let them down. We look to the promises that we've made to our friends and to our coworkers and we see the ways in which we've acted selfishly. And self-centeredly. And suddenly in the presence of God, we start to realize, I'm an unclean person who dwells in among an unclean people. And my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. Woe is me, I'm ruined. The question is, God reigns on his throne, and in one sense, that's good, comforting news, because it means that he is still in control when the world seems like it's spinning into chaos. But on the other hand, it leaves us with the question, but how can we possibly stand in his presence? Which is why what happens next is so beautiful. It says that one of the seraphim, one of the angels that was flying around the Lord, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now, the reason why this detail is such a fascinating one is because of how much it says in just a few short words. The first thing that the angel tells Isaiah is he says, Your guilt is taken away. Now, guilt is something that we have because of something that we've done or failed to do, right? When you're guilty before a court of law, it's because you've committed a crime of some kind. 
You have done something of which you are now accountable, and there is a punishment that awaits you. That's what, guilt, that's what it means to be guilty. It means that you have done something wrong. And what the angel tells him is, he says, your guilt is taken away. But then he says something else. He says, your sin is atoned for. And I think that this is important because these two things are not synonymous. They're related, yes, but they don't mean the exact same thing. See, guilt is something, you're declared guilty because of something that you've done. But what atonement is, is atonement is the removal of shame. The removal of shame which comes from sins. You see, to be guilty is to be wrong because of something that you've done. But to be ashamed is to realize that it's not just something that I've done that's wrong. It's something that I am that is wrong. To be ashamed is to say it's not simply that I've done bad things, but that there's something wrong with who I am. And what he's saying here is this word for atonement is he's saying your sin has been atoned for. Your shame has been removed. You see, in Isaiah's day, people would bring sacrifices to the temple in order to receive atonement. They would bring maybe a, a bull, or they would bring a lamb, or they would bring a pair of pigeons, depending on what animal they could afford. And they would bring it to the priests so that the priests might sacrifice these animals to atone for them. And during that ritual, what they would do is they would lay their hands on the animal, and the priest would say a prayer, and he would say, this animal now bears your shame. This animal now bears your sin, bears it away from you, and then they sacrifice the animal. The animal dies in your place, and your shame is removed. And what the angel is saying here is he's saying, Isaiah, your shame has already been taken away. Someone else has already paid it for you. And to prove it to him, he does something really fascinating. He takes a hot coal from the altar of the Lord and he touches it to his lips. And what's really fascinating about this detail is the fact that in the Old Testament, whenever fire is mentioned, especially in relation to God, hot coals and burning, it's always a sign of judgment. It's never a sign of cleansing. It's always a sign that in the presence of God, the rest of us are burned up because we are guilty. And what this angel is doing is he's taking a live coal with tongs to show that it's still hot. And he brings it to Isaiah and touches his lips and nothing happens. Isaiah is not burned up. The angel comes toward him with the fire of judgment and says, see, this judgment passes you by. This judgment cannot harm you. It cannot burn you. For your sin has been atoned for. Your guilt has been taken away. Someone has done this for you, Isaiah. And what's fascinating is in this story, Isaiah is never told who. He's never told how. He gets glimpses of it as he goes throughout his, the rest of his prophetic career. He's told by God, one day there is one who is coming, who will make a perfect atonement for sins. One who will offer his life as the perfect sacrifice. And Isaiah, his sacrifice is good for you too. And there's immense joy in knowing that. 
knowing that although, yes, we have fallen short, all, knowing, yes, all of our faults and failures, to know that in the presence of God, we are still welcomed, that we have still been washed and cleaned and declared righteous, that we have still been, uh, uh, that our sin has been atoned for, and we are now free, which is why what happens next is just a, is, is such a beautiful and it, uh, response. It makes so much sense. Because after telling Isaiah that his uh, sin has been atoned for, the Lord then says, So whom shall I send? Who will, I go f- uh, who will go for us? And Isaiah responds with excitement and exclamation, Here I am, send me! It's almost like Isaiah is so thrilled at the fact that he has now been atoned for, that his guilt has been taken away, can't help but stand up in joy. And the moment God says, I need some help, I would like someone to be my messenger, he can't help himself. He's like, I want to do that. I will do that. Send me, Lord. This message that you've given me, this message is so good, I want to share it. This message is so good, I don't want to keep it to myself. You want me to go and, t- and take your message? Doesn't matter what, 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 what it is. Just send me. Let me do it. Send me. Here I am. I will be your messenger. That is a response that only comes from knowing that you are welcome in the presence of God. That when you've tasted and seen how good he is, you just can't help but say, Lord, I will go wherever you want. And so Isaiah with delight says, Lord, send me. Let me be your messenger. And you see, that's an invitation that really God gives to all of us because the reality is, is we know how our sins are atoned for. Because what we are told, what we celebrated just this uh, past Christmas day was the fact that the one who atones for sins has come. That he has already made his life an offering for us. That he came and was born in a humble stable. He grew up in our midst. He lived among us walked with us, and ultimately died for us. He laid down his life so that we might live. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our our iniquities. And by his stripes we are healed. And this invitation to be the messenger of God is indeed an invitation that then goes out to us. God still asks the question, whom shall I send and who will go for us? This message of forgiveness and new life is one that he freely gives to us, his people, and he says, will you go? And Isaiah's response is the right response. He says, absolutely. I will definitely go. And he goes even knowing what what ultimately is going to come because then afterwards God says, okay, then I want you to know what you're going to expect. I want you to to understand what you're going to uh, encounter. He says, I want you to go and to tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. What he basically says is, he says, okay, Isaiah, you're going to take my message, but the more you proclaim it, the more hardened people will become. The more you share it, the more it will seem like their ears are closed and their eyes are dull. And Isaiah says, how? How long? He says, basically until all the familiar is stripped away. Until cities lie ruined without inhabitants, until houses are left deserted, the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. 
See, the reality is, is that just because we know that we're forgiven, and just because we decide to respond to that call to be a message bearer, doesn't necessarily mean it's automatically going to become easy. In fact, what God says is nine times out of ten, it's going to become much, much harder. <laughs> that as you go, it may see you are going to encounter closed doors. You will encounter rejection. But I send you anyway. And the reason why I send you is because although you will encounter rejection, there is also still hope. This passage ends with hope. Because he says that just as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. He says that even though it may seem like everyone has rejected, even though it may seem like you've brought the message of salvation and it ends with you, know that there is still a seed of hope in the land. The seed of hope he was talking about was Jesus. See, many scholars have looked at this encounter between Isaiah and the Lord in the temple as an encounter in which Christ himself again shows up. And the reason why they say that is because of something that we see in the Gospel of John speaking about the ministry of Jesus. John chapter 12, verse 37. says, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still wouldn't believe him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. So they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Jesus enters into the world with the same message of Isaiah. God now not only sending a messenger, but becoming the messenger. And he enters into a world and performs many signs, teaches many things, and yet still people rejected him. And yet, even here in John it says, yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. We will encounter rejection when we go as messengers. But the thing that kept Jesus and Isaiah going was that promise of a seed of hope. That within our message is indeed a message of new life that the world desperately needs to hear. And yes, it may lead to difficulty. Yes, it will be uncomfortable. Yes, it may lead to rejection. But the promise is it will also lead to new life. And so we go with that message. See, the question that Jesus gave to Isaiah is a question he still gives to us. He says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And my prayer for us is that in 2019, the answer would be, here I am, Lord, send me. Because one of the things that Jesus told his disciples is he said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. The calling for every follower of Jesus is like Isaiah when he says, who will go for us is to respond with, here I am, Lord, send me. And Jesus says, and just as the Father has sent me, so I send you now. In 2019, we're kicking off a series called Explore God. The whole purpose of this series is to help people. People who lived in anxious times. A world that has a calloused heart and closed ears and blind eyes to come and see, to come and hear, to taste and see that the Lord is good. 
my encouragement to us is as we enter 2019 is to make one resolution and one resolution only. To answer that call, who will go for us with the response, here I am, Lord, send me. And that we would start this year off right as a church by going to the people that we know have questions and inviting them to take a closer look. That as we start January 13th, that we would invite people to join us. But more than that, as we begin on January 6th with an Ask Anything Sunday, our very first worship service of the new year, that we would invite people to come with their questions. Because Jesus is indeed that seed of hope. He is indeed the branch from Jesse's tree. And my prayer for us as we enter 2019 is that we would continue to sing that Advent hymn, not just with words, but with our very lives. O come, thou branch of Jesse's tree, free them from Satan's tyranny, that trust thy mighty power to save and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Jesus Christ is indeed the Lord who sent. Who says who will go for us? And our answer and our response in worship is, here I am, Lord. Send me. Amen.